0: I'm having to use the weekend, not to relax, but to prepare myself for the next week and the next onslaught and and the white women who, and this happened to me, oh, your shirt looks nice, but touching my shirt and unbuttoning my shirt. Yes, unbuttoning my shirt.
1: Can we agree that leadership isn't based on title or position? I have created this podcast to talk to everyday people lead in extraordinary ways in their everyday lives both professionally and personally in the hope that it will inspire everyday people like you and me to realize we are everyday leaders welcome to everyday leadership the more we listen to people's lived experiences the more we learn to hopefully make better informed decisions and as we celebrate Black History Month my guest today provides his perspective of what it's like being a black man in the UK and we go way back to the 1970s to when he was born in, in Birmingham all the way to now talking about racism, parenting, education, working and what that was like, mental health many topics along their way. And the way he delivers this as a natural storyteller is comical, but powerful at the same time. I know you're going to learn a lot as always. This is Everyday Leadership. And this morning I have the pleasure of sitting down with James. James, James has been in the, in the industry, shall I say, for for like 25 years, in public, private, arts, entertainment sectors. He's a writer, he's a speaker, performer, producer, business and marketing consultant. He's a man that's slick with the pen when it comes to copywriting. How are you doing,
0: sir? I'm good, thank you very much. Thank you for inviting me on.
1: It was a, it was a pleasure. I think um, in recent times, um, James has been popping up quite a lot on on LinkedIn, and I just loved, loved his... His take on what's going on right now in, in the world, but before we even get into that, I want to delve back a bit into you growing up in in Birmingham in the seventies, and what was what was that like? Because I I like to obviously I grew up in in the um, in the nineties, and I want to get a comparison between then and my upbringing to now my kids' upbringing who are growing up in this era actually and see what that was like for you. I know you talked to me in the past about you had like National Front rallies going on on a regular basis. How did you deal with all of that? Oh yeah, I mean, I would say
0: probably once or twice a month. In my when I say in my area, I mean round the corner. Sometimes on my road, the seventies were. We'll put it this way: everybody now has a colour TV. We had a black and white TV, right? And back in the day, you had. BBC One, BBC Two, and ITV. And I was the remote control. I could be upstairs in the garden or whatever. If somebody wants the TV turned over. I was the remote control. <laughs> I, <laughs> you, get, you get that call from the parents like, come down. Yeah, yeah, you go. Hey, come here. Go, come down. Yes, Daddy? Oh, turn over. And I'm like, you're sitting six feet away from the TV. Why did you need to call me? And he kind of gives you the look like, well, you're a child. <laughs> Why do you think I had you? <laughs> My TV turn over to what I want to watch. None of this Tom and Jerry foolishness. I want to watch horse racing. Put it on. So, so the 70s for me was racism was in your face. And what I mean by that is, you, you know, you can go out on the road and adults could call you and would call you the N-word and feel no way about it. No way at all. You've been the playground at school. Kids are calling you the N-word. Not a problem. Some teachers will call you the N-word. Teachers! <laughs> you know what I mean? It was like, it was, it was the unacceptable accepted. You know, I grew, grew up with my parents from the Caribbean island of St. Kitts, both of them, but they only met each other when they came to England. Like most Caribbean people only met each other when they came to England. So. My parents told me and my two older brothers, you are English. And we're like, okay. Because, so you're English. No, no, no. Our parents said, no, we're we're British because we're born in the West Indies. We're West Indian, but we're British citizens. But because you're born here, you're English. Okay, so you come out the door and you're thinking, I'm English. And everybody's saying, "Uh, no, you're not. You're the N-word. They never saw us as English. In the 70s, you were not. If you're black and born in Britain, especially England, you were never seen as being English. You were never even seen as being British. You were black. And, you you know, it's, the nice thing is if they called you black because you did the N-word, you this, you that, you this, you that, but never English, certainly never British. But it was tough. But at the same time, your parents put you out there to say, you know what, you've got to defend yourself because we're having a hard time at work. So it's not like how nowadays where parents could say to the children, and how was your day today? I don't recall my parents ever asking me how my day was. Because as far as my parents were concerned, they left school, they left to go to work. And it's like, well, we know what time school starts. You better get yourself to school. You better learn. So there's none of this, so James, how was school today? It's like, well, I don't care what your school was like today, James. I just know that you went. And you best study, because if the teachers tell me you didn't study, Hell to pay. So there was none of this kind of you know interaction with your parents. Your parents spoke at you rather than had conversations with you. But it was extru- you know, instructional. Do this, do that, go to school, go to bed, you know. None of this. How are you feeling today? If my parents ever would have said to me and my brothers, how are you feeling today? Would have thought, this is a trap. <laughs> 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 how do you want me to feel mother? How do you want me to feel <laughs> You know, so even from a, from a child's perspective, as a black child in the 1970s, going to school and being surrounded by white and Asian kids and listening to the white kids talk about their interaction with their parents, you know, you get kids saying, oh, my mum and dad can't tell me what to do. And that's those black kids going, excuse me now, what, what? Can't tell me what to do, can't barge in my room. And I'm thinking, you have your own room. You got your own room. <laughs> I shared a room with my brothers. I shared a bed with my brother until he went to uni. <laughs> you know what I mean? And he's only two years older than me. So it's like all these kids, oh, you can't tell me what to do and I get pocket money. And I'm like, pocket money? What? All the black kids were like, what? what's pocket money? Ah, yeah. So I remember going home, saying to my dad. What's that? Dad, all my friends at school, all my white friends get pocket money. And he said, that's because them don't live here. Seriously. (laughs) And he goes, that's it. And then my mum was saying, why do you need money when everything you and your brothers have, me and your dad pay for? And you know you want to say, to buy sweets. But you know that's going to be a boss slap in the face. <laughs> so you're saying nothing. Because you don't need anything. You want, but you don't need. But this was the 70s. You know, the 70s when there were strikes, when there were power cuts. See, you don't even remember. You wouldn't even know that were power cuts. I'm talking, you know, like you'd be sitting there, everything boom, boom, off. And you have to get the candles out. And this is a national power cut, not a regional power cut. You know, and, and strikes and union strikes and everything, and, and racism in your face, and, you know, white people training their dogs to bark at you and chase you. And dogs weren't on leads. You had Alsatians running after black kids up and down the road, Rottweilers and everything.
1: Serious. Did you ever get angry? And did you ever just get vexed and just lash out, or did you manage to stay in control throughout all of that? As a child, you were never in control. I'm, talk, talk, I'm not talking on behalf
0: of every black person. I'm telling you what went on in my family, which probably a lot of black people can resonate with. Right? But in my family, it's like you never felt this sense of control because I had two gang leaders, mom and dad. <laughs> you know what I mean? They were the leaders in our family. So they dictated the pace. So you didn't really have a chance to vocalize your anger and frustration in that sense. Because your parents made it very clear. Everybody talks about having the talk about whether it's a talk about how the police are going to treat you. In our family, because my brothers and I are very tall and we're always very tall for our age, the talk was because you're tall and because you're black and male, people are going to target you. The police are going to be watching you. People are going to be watching you. You represent us as a family. Come correct. Don't bring no police to my door. I would, you know, to me, if it's a case of being arrested by the police and being brought to my parents' attention or living with a paedophile, I'd have preferred a pedophile. But the paedophile. Because the paedophile would have kept me alive. For perverse reasons, but the paedophile would have kept me alive. Whereas your parents, when your parents told you I could kill you, it wasn't a threat, it was a statement of intent. So we believed what our parents told us. Whereas nowadays, you can say to a child, no, no, no. And it turns to probably, maybe, my parents said no once. Because who can't hear, must feel. And that was it. So I was never afraid of the teachers when I was at school. I was afraid of what the teachers would tell my parents. So my parents were law and order. You know, and they were very very strict. A lot stricter than a lot of the um, the black kids I knew, their parents were. So we weren't allowed on road. So when these National Front rallies were occurring, most of the time we were in the house looking out the window. Or if we were out, we were with mom or dad who would stare us in the other direction. So I was never one of these guys where it's like, oh, you know, James is out till nine, 10 o'clock at night. It's like, where's James? He's in here. Why? Because I tell him to be. So, you know, growing up and everybody said, oh, you know what it was like on the streets? I'm like, no, I don't. I know what it was like in my house. So I wasn't, I was a homeboy, literally. <laughs> I was at home. So in a lot of ways, as much as, you know, the 70s and the 80s were that turbulent time, I felt the protection of my family unit. Because I knew if there's anything that went wrong, especially my parents said to, to me, James, if you've got a problem with any of your teachers, don't argue with the teachers. Tell us, we'll back you up. But at the same time, if you're in the wrong, we'll deal with you. So it's different. It was, like I said, you saw the racism on the streets. You turned on your TV. You saw and heard the racism, whether it's your comedians like your Jim Davidsons or your Bernard Mannings or your TV programs like your Alf Garnett. As much as the creator of Alf Garnett said, yeah, it's really about him being a bigot and showing his ignorance, he was still allowed to, to deliver racist slurs on primetime BBC. So we're having to pay to be insulted because you have to pay a TV license. Then you switch over to ITV, which is a commercial station, getting more of the same. So difficult time. You know, older ones than me embrace rasta because they were born a lot earlier so whether it's rasta and reggae music and they learn about their black history and identity from there but i'm a lot younger so i was never impacted by reggae or rasta it was being brought up in england by old school caribbean parents who because of colonialism knew more about britain than they did about africa and never regarded themselves as African in any way. That's so deep.
1: That's deep, isn't it? <laughs> so what would you say you are you British? Are you black British? Are you Caribbean? Like what would you describe if <laughs> yourself to use <maybe? laughs> you something? Yeah. I describe myself
0: as being black British. Now it's only I only actually internalized being British in 2012. And you're thinking, hold on a minute, you're in your 50s, but you only internalised being British in 2012. Yes. And that was because of the Olympic Games. Wow. When I watched the opening and closing ceremonies, because I knew I was British, but internally I didn't feel British until I watched the opening ceremony. And I was like, oh. So what did you feel before that? I just felt I was black. Because I've been to the Caribbean seven, eight times. And I'm telling you, the interesting thing, the first time you go there, you hear them go, hey, English, man. And you're thinking, I say, who are you calling English? Gosh, is that my voice? I say, my voice doesn't sound like that in English. (laughs) (laughs) English, man, what are you dealing with? And you turn around and it's a 10-year-old with a deeper voice than you. English, what are you dealing with? You go, I say. (laughs) You know? So it's only in the Caribbean that I was ever called English. Because I went there thinking, well, I'm black and I've got Caribbean parents. I'm home. Then it's like, English man. Oh. Mm -hmm. Then you come back to England. Black man, if you're lucky. N-word. Never British. But yeah, 2012 is when I thought, looked at the Olympic ceremony, the opening ceremony, and thought, I can relate to that. I can relate to that. Then it literally, the pin dropped. Oh, my gosh. I am British. So, internally, I've had eight years of being British. Yet, being told, as a child, you're English. (laughs) Going to the Caribbean, yeah, you're English. Being in Britain, no, you're not, mate. But, of course, I'm black, so I had to say, well, okay, if I'm British, I'm black British. And to make that distinction, because, again, going back, I've been to America as well, and they're like, oh, my God, your your, your accent's... And I'm like... You know, over there it's like I, I sound English. <laughs>
1: you know what I mean? I mean you like you sound from, from royalty over there.
0: I remember I went I went to New York for a meeting. Because I was involved in Carifest, Fest, which is a Caribbean festival of arts, which happens every four years in different Caribbean art. It's like the Olympic Games of Creative Arts in the Caribbean. And it, and that time round, it was gonna be held in St. Kitts. So I ended up having A meeting with somebody at the embassy, the new embassy in New York. And my aunt lives in New York. So I literally went over for one week to have a meeting. Well, I landed on the Saturday. The Sunday was Easter Sunday. So my aunt said, We've got to go to church. We go to church. I said, Oh, okay. Bit jet lag. No problem. Went to church. Huge church. Hundreds of people, hundreds of black people in the church. And the preacher's up the front and goes, on this Easter Sunday, do we have any visitors? And you get people that, hi, we're from Minnesota, this and that. And my aunt, who used to work for the British Embassy in New York, shouts out, my nephew's here from England. And I'm like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> So everybody's looking at me and I'm telling you, I stood up, all I heard was, hello, my name is James. And I'm from England. And I'm thinking, oh my gosh, that's my voice. I didn't realize. (laughs) And I'm thinking, wow. And everyone's looking at me like, oh my God, he speaks English. And afterwards, all the older women, I'm talking the elder women, not the young women my age, all the elder women were flocking around me. And I'm looking at all the younger women, thinking, "Yeah, I want to talk to them." All the the women, (laughs) my God, so wonderful. Do you have you met the Queen? Do you eat uh, cucumber sandwiches? And they said, "Speak to me again." I'm thinking, I'm trying to romance your granddaughters. (laughs) You know why are you crowding me? But it's amazing when you go to an area where full of black people who either speak with an American accent or a Caribbean accent, you realize how English your accent really is. Which when you're in England. White people don't pick up on that so much. It's like, okay, I understand what this black person is saying, but I'm amazed because it's a black person, so they miss what you're saying because they're listening to the color of your skin. And I found that whether in my personal life or in business as well. You're having to repeat yourself, not because they don't understand, it's because they weren't listening to your voice, they were listening to your skin.
1: So, going to your industry, which is a predominantly white industry, and obviously, was like you described growing up, there was not, you had three channels on TV, there's a lot of racism strikes, all that kind of stuff. I can there was hardly any representation on TV. Why did you decide to step into, into that world?
0: Right. This is a bit of a rewind, come again, select a moment. I started off in the creative arts. And what tends to happen is you start off as a kid thinking, yeah, I want to write stories. So I was very, I was the best in English at school, top in English language and literature. Before I did my O levels, that shows you how old I was because there was no GCSEs. It was GCEs. So when I was doing my O, before I did my O levels, my English teachers said, James, you could do A level English. Right. So I was writing stories. I wanted to become a journalist. Mainly because at that age, and I thought, well, I'm really good at English. It never crossed my mind you could make money being a novelist. I'll be honest with you. Wasn't even thinking about writing for TV or film. So I thought, well, if I'm good at writing, the only job I know that pays you to write is journalism. So, you get a careers officer who came to school. And I was always in the top stream. In my five years at secondary school, me and a few other black boys and girls were in the top stream consistently. But we all had to see, they brought a careers officer in to see everyone in the final year. Oh. So I said, yeah, I'm interested in in journalism. You know and the guy's not even looking at us. He's got pen bands. And he goes, he kind of looks up and he goes, no, I think a YTS, a youth training scheme, would be better for you. So you walk out feeling dejected and thinking, hold on, I want journalism stuff. And then you talk to all the black boys in your ear
1: and we were all told YTS. So straight away, they already put you in that, in a, in a box because of your colour, your skin.
0: Straight away. Yeah. And you're thinking, well, hold on. So some of them are saying, well, hold on, James, you're in the top street. But we were all whether top, top, middle, bottom. All the black boys were told by the careers officer, a YTS scheme, a youth training scheme is better for you. So obviously I didn't take any notice of that. I actually got accepted into Journalism College. Didn't go, but here's the reason why I didn't go. In my house, the only newspapers I saw were the local newspaper or the tabloids. My parents didn't read the Times, the Guardian, thankfully not the Daily Mail, but we didn't read the broadsheets. I never saw the broadsheets. The only papers I saw were the tabloids. And at the time, the tabloids, you think they're bad now when it comes to racism. They were giving us hell. Blatant hell. Mm-hmm. So I looked at it and I thought, well, hold on. Why would I want to join a profession that destroys black people so much from the outside, not from the inside looking out? How, I didn't, I thought, why would I want to be in that industry? And, How the hell could I get in that industry? So nobody, I didn't have a conversation with anyone about this. I just decided, well, journalism can't be for me because the only place I would end up is in the tabloid sector, working for your Sun newspapers or your Daily Mirror's or your Daily Star's and having to put up with racist abuse and having to tolerate them putting out all this racism about us. So I said, not having it. So I didn't go. When I've told that to people now, they're like, oh, my God, James, you wasted an opportunity. But I'm not excusing myself. That's all I knew. It's a bit like, you know, when your parents, when I looked at my parents, it was factory or office. For me, it was, well, you're probably going to end up working for the sun. And I don't want to be part of that. So I removed myself from that. So I went into creative writing, got attached to a black theatre company here in Birmingham while I was working in the British Civil Service which was straight from college, literally from college, applied to go to university, accepted into university, having to wait, because in those days, university started in September. So having to wait to see whether I would get a place. And in the meantime, summer holidays, I thought, let me just apply for a job. Got a job, an admin assistant in the Department of Trade and Industry. Insolvency division, bankruptcies and liquidations. And again, walking in there and finding that you are the only black male in the organization. There was one black female older than me, but the only black male. And it's like, well, obviously we don't belong here. But for me, it was like, well, this is only for like six week holiday. It's going to be cool. Turned out I was there for 13 months. Then I went to university. And then after, you know, after university, struggling to get a job. Even being advised in the careers, at a job centre, sorry, to remove my degree off my CV because it was a hindrance. How? How's that hindrance? Yeah. Seriously. Overqualified. This is what I want. Well, you know, uh, because I remember, because basically, we're going into the job centre every two weeks to sign on. And I made an announcement to say, look, we need proof that everybody's applying for jobs. And I had Loads of rejection letters. So I came with a plastic bag full of rejection letters. I remember walking in, everyone's looking at me because some people had like two in their hand. I had a bag, and we're all sitting there. It's like open plan, and so I hand over my bag load of rejection letters. The white woman behind the desk is looking at all the rejection letters. She goes, "Oh dear, have you got your CV?" And I show her the CV, and at the top, degree, and that's when she said. Yeah, maybe this is a hindrance. So I said loud enough for everyone to hear, but not shouting, How's a black man supposed to explain a three year absence?
1: Because mm-hmm.
0: you know what that means, yeah?
1: Yeah,
0: HMP, <laughs> you know what I mean? None of this, you know, black people back then, I don't know about now, but black people that you didn't say, Oh, yo, i was on a gap here, you're in prison. About having a gap
1: here. But I'm giving enough gap years. And there's nothing you can say that's gonna convince anyone otherwise, unless you've got proof that you've been doing something.
0: Exactly. But this woman saying, Yeah, you need to remove your degree from your CV because it's hindering you from getting a job. When when I was at university, the lecturers are saying, Everybody who's got a degree, you guys are gonna earn big money. And eight months later, the job that I ended up getting. You know when you go for a job interview and they say to you, "Oh, well, you know, if you don't hear from us within the next fortnight, I'm afraid you've been unsuccessful," which is standard. Mm-hmm. Went for this particular job interview. They said to, they said to me, um, "You know, that, so where do you see yourself in two years' time?" And I said, "In your job." And they all laughed at me. A lot of white people. And I was thinking, no, "I'm being serious. Don't here to ramp. Anyway, two weeks passed. Nothing. Okay. So I'm applying for other jobs. A month later. I get a letter from the same people. Basically, and this is what they're putting writing. I'm not making this up. You weren't first choice. I'm thinking, yeah, I know that. You weren't second choice. Excuse me. You weren't third choice. You were fourth choice. And you've got a week to decide whether you want the job or not. In the letter. And let me rewind slightly. You know when I talk about academic requirements. The academic requirements for this job were O-levels. O-levels, not even A-levels. I didn't do A-levels. I did a B-tech business and finance, which is the equivalent of A-levels. So not even O-level, not even B-tech. So basically, I was qualified to do the job when I was 16. Bearing in mind, I'd already had over a year's experience in the British Civil Service and a degree and a Tech National Diploma in Business and Finance, but the only people who would offer me a job offered it to me four weeks later saying, your fourth choice. So as you can imagine, I'm outraged. I'm opening this letter, and I'm vexed, and I'm reading it to my parents, and my mom's, you know, going, oh dear, oh dear, and I'm good, but my dad goes, hold on a minute, so they offered you the job. Yeah, Dad, you don't understand. And he goes, so they offered you the job. And my mom was listening to me. She goes, James, I feel your pain. I said, oh, it's it's disgraceful. That's when I can hear the English. It's disgraceful. It's just, I've studied really hard. I'm English. I'm British. My dad's going, hola. So they offered you the job. Yeah, Dad, I ain't taking this job. I'm not taking this job. I'm a a man. And he goes, let me make it clear for you. If you don't take that job, you can't live here. And I'm looking at my mom, my mom was like, don't look at me. And I thought, wow. And my dad just walked out of the room. That's why he did deliver something and I just walked out of the room. And I'm still angry. And I'm like, yeah, but I've got a degree. And it's like, how dare they make me fourth choice for a job I didn't even want anyway? And it's like, "I got, I've got seven days to turn this around. So of course I'm applying for jobs, nothing happens. So reluctantly, I took the job. And of course, one of the things that they tell you is, it's much easier to get a job when you have a job. Put an asterisk to that, unless your name's James Pogson. Because I stayed in that job for two years. I applied for other jobs. You know how you get annual leave? I got in the two years I was in that job, I used all my annual leave to go to job interviews and funerals. Because you know our black funerals no half-hour business. You know it's an all-day and an all-nighter. So in two years, all my Annual leave was spent on going to funerals and interviews. Fortunately, more interviews than funerals. But all of the interviews, rejections. And I had enough. I literally, I do this thing where I talk about, and even in my copywriting work, and even my stuff on LinkedIn, I suppose, I look at the distinction between logic and emotion. And we're all emotional creatures. We buy into things based on emotion. If you buy a lotto ticket, why? Because it could be you. You know, one sits down and does do, do does the equations to find out, oh, you know, it's like, if you were going to be, if you imagine now, if you won the lotto, you wouldn't sit there with your family to say, okay, well, financially we're secure. We can pay off the mortgage. You'd be like, I'm rich beyond my wildest dreams. <laughs> yes. Emotion. So we were emotionally driven people. So I ended up leaving my job for emotional reasons. Because the way I was treated, yet again, another organization where I'm the only black male. I think there were about three or four black females. But the only black male. And how I was treated just too much. So I ended up leaving my job on emotional reasons. As opposed to saying, well, I've got a job lined up. Fortunately, because of the people I was working with in the creative arts industry, my final day as an employee was on a Friday. On, a mon- on the next Monday, I was doing a prison consultancy. Bring, you know, so there was no lapse. But the reason why I stepped away was purely emotional. And I thought, all these people telling me what to do, you know, but treating me not as a human being, it's like oh, this black guy, even for the first few months I was there, I, I thought to myself, I think I'm being watched. And I spoke to the, one of the black women, I said, well, a sis, I said, sis, is it me? Or am I being watched? And she says, it's not you. And she explained to me, two years before I joined the organization, there was a black guy in the IT department. And she said he was brilliant. She said, even better than the IT manager. I said, okay. So I said, so he left for a better job. So now he got caught stealing. So they fired him. And they said, and she said, You are the first black man I've hired since. So everybody's watching to see if you're a thief like him. Yeah. And some of this, the, you know, some of the stuff, I used to get phone calls asking to speak to the colored chap. The colored chap. Because oh, so-and-so told me to phone to have to speak to the colored chap. Now, when you're in a large organisation, and I was the only male named James in the organisation, but this woman is told to speak to the coloured chap. So what, you couldn't say, James? The coloured chap. You know, speak to, ask to speak to the coloured chap. And this is someone in my own department who told the person that. Ask to speak to the coloured chap. So I can't even be called by my first name. So I left for emotional reasons. (laughs) Tough. It's like... Every day going home, dreading the next day. My weekends were spent preparing for the next week. Literally. Saturday, laundry. Sunday, iron all my shirts. Because you know I'm not wearing the same shirt every day. Every day fresh. Whereas my boss would wear the same white shirt on Monday, come Friday. You know the white shirt's gray. And no one's batting an eyelid. And he don't even he wasn't even ironing his shirts. I'm dressed, you know, I'm looking stush every day. Different shirt, different tie, every day. You know what I mean? And you're thinking, hold on a minute. And this man ranks, you know, you could go, I'm putting some up around or something. You're like, the man smells rank. But that's, that's, that's to me a different kind of white privilege, that you can go, you can rock up to the workplace, rank, and nobody butts an eyelid. <laughs> nobody. Oh, boy. Yeah. Boy. Listen, I remember back in the day when I had hair, and you know when your hair is nutty, 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 nutty. One day I couldn't comb my hair, you know. I thought, let me just kind of try and flick it out. It's just too <laughs> tough for me to comb. And I thought, let me just I thought, look in the mirror and I think, it don't look so bad. Let me just style it out, man. Going to school, white kids ain't saying nothing. Black kids, shame you didn't comb your hair. And, oh, man. Why? Where's the privilege? Whereas white people, you lot squander your privilege, man. Let me be a white man for 24 hours, trust me. Why? I don't care if it's a pandemic. I'm every well, If you did do it, if you did do it every day, <laughs> I'm, from you know, clock strikes midnight until eleven fifty nine p.m. and fifty nine seconds, I'm rinsing my whiteness to the maximum. And if the police come knocking on my door the next day looking for white James, black James answers because ain't no white man here. But it was just mentally. It was a difficult time because, like I said, yeah, I'm having to use the weekend not to relax, but to prepare myself for the next week and the next onslaught. And the the white women who, and this happened to me, oh, your shirt looks nice, but touching my shirt and unbuttoning my shirt. Yes, unbuttoning my shirt. Is this for, this is why I say to people, truth is stranger than fiction. I'm on the phone, open plan office, I'm on the phone. Again, this is when I had hair. I'm on the phone talking to a client i feel a hand in my hair so i kind of turn around i'm still on the phone one of the white women from the accounts department smiling so i carry on with the conversation put down the phone and she says oh you can touch my hair if you want and all i said was no thank you and she stormed off she complained to hr
1: that what I upset her. Because you refuse. Wait wait, 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 wait. a minute. Just a Wait, 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 wait. She fussed up herself. Put her hand up in your hair. Yep. She asked you to do the same. You said no. I said no, thank you. You said no, thank you. And she complained against you.
0: Yes. Minna lie. The first I knew about the complaint was my boss got called to HR. And my boss comes out, walking up to me, kind of looking all meek and everything. And he goes, can we have a word? Okay, what's up? And he goes, there's been a complaint made against you. I said, well, what? And he mentioned the woman. I said, oh, you mean the woman who put her hand in my hair? And he goes, yeah, but she was very upset. I said, she was very, hold on, she's very upset because I said, no, thank you. And then I walked out of the room. I thought, this is foolishness. Foolishness. So I didn't even take it seriously. He didn't go any further. I, I walked out of the room. I said, you, you're kidding. White fragility? I had many cases like that, you know, it's just, you know, One, I remember sitting down, one woman standing above me, shouting at me in open plan office, telling everyone, to, telling me, don't you shout at me. And I just said to her, yeah. And everyone's looking around thinking, well, we didn't hear James shout. But well, she's shouting at me, go, don't, and point at me, don't you shout at me. And I just said very calmly, I said to her very calmly, I said, if I was shouting, everybody would know about it. But yeah. And I... I had made a conscious effort, again, being the only black man, and this is around the time, remember the Rodney King beating? I always said to myself, don't give them a cause to give you a Rodney King beating in the office. So seriously, I never raised my hands above shoulder height while I was in that office. Never. I never raised my voice, my wit, and my sarcasm with lethal weapons. Because I was on it. Bam, bam, bam. But I thought, I'm the only black man here if I go, even if I kissed my teeth or raised my hands, I could imagine four or five white guys holding me down, accidentally suffocating me or breaking my neck and saying that they were in fear for their lives. And one of my roles was I had to deliver the post to every department. So what they'd call now microaggressions, I was getting back then. And I'm having to use my wit to deal with it. Because if I would have gone, hey, boy, hey, 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 that's a threat. In fact, let me let me even ask you
1: about you know, that. Because was- I... I don't believe in microaggressions. I just believe that they're aggress- the Thank you, neither do I. Because they're, they're not micro. Yeah. Nothing, nothing, it's not small. It might be small to you, but it's not small to me. And then all of a sudden someone blows up. You're like, oh, what happened there? Yeah. Because the aggressions they've been dealing with on a regular basis, it all adds up. It's not micro.
0: Yeah. I don't, I, I said micro because it's the in, it's, it's word. Yeah. I don't, when people said, oh, microaggressions, I'm like, what's that? What do you mean microaggressions? It's so like you, I don't get this whole microaggression. It's like, you know what you're saying. You, you know you're doing it deliberately. And I'm like, you're looking for a reaction. You know, the same way the Karens and Amys phone the police because they want a result. When they're using these aggressions, they're looking for a reaction. And especially if you're a black man, they're expecting a physical or verbal reaction. They're not expecting sarcasm and wit. So I say, I've got a fully loaded wit-, wit, don't shoot. But it's tough. You're having to kind of say to yourself, you're having to, I found myself giving myself a pep talk every morning when I was going to work. You know, you wake up and you clear your throat. Mum was like, oh, oh, dog, have I got a cold? Have I got a cold? Is it the flu? Oh no, it's not. Oh, you mean I've got to go to work. And you know, you're going in,
1: morning, morning, did you have a nice evening?
0: And when you're leaving, have a nice evening. I'm thinking, how am I supposed to have a nice evening when I know I've got to come back here in the morning? <laughs> come on. And there's no black guys around me to say, yo, Bridger, nothing. And the black women there, you know, enough respect to them, but they were fighting their own battles. So I couldn't say, sis, sis, back me up on this. I couldn't do that. And I knew that. So it was just, it was just like, as the Rastas would say, it was I and I, <laughs> you know what I mean? And it's just every black man for himself, because you were the only black man. And as far as they were concerned, even though they didn't say the words, it's like, oh, yeah, James, we don't see colour. We see you. Yeah, at the same time, they would come up to me and say, is it true what they say about black men? And i would say, yeah, we got we got bigger brains. And they go, that's not what we meant. And I said, so what did you mean? And they wouldn't say what they mean. They wouldn't. So, yeah, like you, I'm not like, microaggressions. What? What's that? I've only known aggression. <laughs> you know what I mean? Someone being a child, someone being aggressive. So microaggressions. Who, <laughs> who? came up with the term microaggressions. Because they don't sound like us. <laughs> I
1: need to look into that actually. I never looked into, to find out where that came from.
0: But you know what I mean? Because if it was us, we wouldn't have said that's a microaggression. If anything, they say, you have been rank. You're being racist. It's not a microaggression. Yeah. The same way we never came up with BAME. You know what I mean? Because... BAME. <laughs> BAME sounds like a Batman villain. <laughs> <laughs> BAME. Policeman, you know, but you know when the you know when the policeman says he picked the description. He ain't looking for a BAME man. You know? <laughs> Why you need him? BM. No, you're black. So stop saying BAME. Say black. If you mean Asian, say Asian. You know, don't say BAME. Because you know when, when Linfred Christie won, you know, won Olympic European Commonwealth and World, he went BAME, he was black. He was Ben Johnson. You know, when he got stripped of his um, world championship, he was a black man. In fact, he was a Jamaican, even though he's a Canadian citizen. When he won it, he was Canadian. When he lost it, when, when, when he got proved to be a drug cheat, he was a Jamaican. Nobody called him Bane. So again, these terminologies we don't invent. So we're not even need control of our own narratives. No, you're BAME. No, that's a microaggression. You've got a chip on your shoulder. Oh, so when we got a noose around our neck, what did they call that? Oh, yeah, that's justice, apparently. Yeah? So when knee on our neck, when everyone, when we're watching George Floyd being murdered and we're saying that's inhumane, I said, well, hold on, what makes you think the police officer thinks that George is a human? And this is my thing. I believe, and this is just my personal belief, which many people might agree with or disagree with, I think we are still fighting for our humanity. And by that I mean we are humans, but the white majority do not believe we are human. They believe we have human qualities, but not quite human. Because remember in slavery, when we were enslaved, it was written that we were three-fifths human. It was never unwritten that we were not three-fifths human. So when my mum came to this country in 1960 as a 17-year-old and got a job in a factory... And the white women said to her, we can't believe you speak so well. Where do you hide your tail? True story. Where do you hide your tail? What humans do you know have tails? We have a tail bone. Everybody has a tail bone. But what humans do you know who have a tail? And this was not in 1860. This was in 1960.
1: Where's your tail? So in 2020, have things got better? Pause that thought. That was part one and has a little taste of what's coming up in part two. So make sure you get involved and check it out next week. What I remember one guy very high up
0: in the arts literature world here in the Midlands. He still exists, he's still in the same role, not gonna name him. He said to me, James, you know your problem. You're too confident, you're too intelligent, you're too articulate and you intimidate myself.
1: Don't forget, I have show notes on my website everydayleadership.buzzsprout.com so check that out and if you've enjoyed today's episode make sure you subscribe and tell someone else appreciate your support I'll see you next time this is Everyday Leadership